I, I think the way that Sapolsky describes it, depression is a disease that makes it makes you incapable of enjoying a sunset. That was a loke quoting from Robert Sapolsky's lecture on depression from Stanford University. In today's episode of Silent Superheroes, we'll be following Alok's long journey with major depressive disorder and dysthymia, from the first time he realized that he was depressed at school, through taking time out before going to college, and finally crafting a successful career in the workforce working in QA. Some of the things we'll cover are Alok's experiences with medication, and the important difference between suicide as wanting death and simply wanting to not be alive. In many ways, Alok isn't a silent superhero. He's someone who talks freely and openly about his experiences with depression. In doing so, Alok creates space for others to ask him questions and to share their experiences. Alok made a big difference to my experience with depression. About seven years ago, he sat me down and explained what it was like to go through a major depression. I didn't realize it at the time, but he was describing experiences I had had and experiences that would get worse over the coming years. But I'm grateful to Alok because through his courage in sitting down and sharing his experience, when somebody did say, James, I think you've been in a major depression, I didn't feel quite so alone. Please remember that the people you hear on Silent Superheroes are discussing their personal experiences with mental health. If you're considering a change to your treatment plan, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. Uh, I'm here with today's guest, Alok. Alok and I are uh, old friends. We've known each other for 10, 12 years. I would say 12, 12 feels about right. Yeah. 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 Um, Some of that. So I know you well, um, yes. but people who are listening would not know you well. So why don't you tell us who you are? Does anyone really know anyone? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. This is not philosophy 101. I, I forgot. Yeah. Okay. So uh, my name's Alok, Indian American gentleman. I grew up in Massachusetts, college in New Orleans, and then moved to Seattle after college. That was in 2003, and I've lived here ever since. So 15 years. You know, we're talking about mental illness here. Why don't you tell us what your uh, mental illness is? What my damage is? (laughs) Um, Yeah, sure. So uh, I have something that's called double depression. So it's dysthymia comorbid with major depressive disorder. People are probably familiar with major depressive disorder. Dysthymia is a lower grade, longer lasting form of depression. It lives on the bipolar spectrum. There's a a converse condition against mania called euthymia, which is sort of like a low grade mania that people kind of live with for a while, but I have the other one. (laughs) Um, um, And the, the result of that is that you feel generally low and then you have episodes of feeling very low. And then when you come out of your very low episode, you don't come back to your baseline is lower than than other people's so you end up kind of having a a low grade to high grade depressive experience pretty much all the time I also have some complex PTSD from various traumatic experiences in my youth. Uh, my mom was an alcoholic and and was pretty abusive uh, it was a difficult time growing up so I have I have a lot of PTSD type 
things around there. A lot less now. I've been in therapy for a very long time, but <laughs> but but uh, it's still it's still definitely definitely there. So you said uh, you talked mentioned major depressive disorder for somebody who doesn't know what that is. Sure. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Okay. So major depressive disorder is a mood disorder which causes short, sharp episodes of depression. Uh, I'm, I'm going to reference a video that I showed you a long time ago, mm-hmm, um, which is uh, it's up on YouTube. Dr. Robert Sapolsky, who's a primatologist at Stanford, recorded a, an hour, about an hour long lecture about depression in general and the cultural, contextual and chemical influences and triggers where the current thinking is or where it was uh, about five, six years ago. And I don't know that our understanding of depression has changed significantly. So depressive episodes are marked by a a few key symptoms. Not everyone displays all of those symptoms, but any depressive episode will probably have two to three or more of them. Anhedonia is kind of the one that a lot of people are familiar with. It's a inability to feel pleasure. The way that Sapolsky describes it in the video is depression is a disease that makes it makes you incapable of enjoying a sunset. You're just not able to derive the kinds of satisfactions or pleasures from things that other people can. Uh, Another one is uh, psychomotor retardation, which is a seeming sort of paralysis, not in, not paralysis in, in terms of a actual like plegic uh, condition, but it takes a great deal of energy to try to move. It takes a great deal of energy to try to get up or do anything. Let's, I would love to hear about your direct experience sure. of those things. Sure. So yeah, so um, my depressive episodes tend to come in fairly distinct phases. And of course, we didn't talk about the big one, which was suicidal ideation mm-hmm. and, and suicidality in general. When I start to idly ponder the end of my own life, uh-huh. that's around when I can start to tell, oh, okay, I think maybe an episode's coming on. And for me, it's a very non-dramatic thing. It's it's sort of like, oh, I, I could just die. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. That sounds fine. Um, and it's not like associated with the plan. It's not associated with like, a, oh, I'm oh, I could just run off that bridge. You know what I mean? It's more a sense of an ending to a pain that I'm I'm feeling dimly. One of the things that's sort of interesting about depression is that it seems to interact with your brain's perception of pain such that it triggers perceptions of pain without any kind of physical source. So you feel genuinely like you're in pain, you have all of the things that come along with pain except for the actual like right. physical sensation yeah. of it. It's almost like the way you describe it, one might think of suicidal ideation as some kind of titanic, dramatic internal right. struggle. Right. But I'm I'm hearing something a lot more matter of fact. You know, I would say that I think that what you're describing exists too. And I've definitely had those moments. I've, I've had some pretty despairing moments holding an implement or another, looking in a mirror at three in the morning and trying to make some very, very serious decisions very, very quickly. (laughs) Pretty serious decision. Uh, It's pretty serious decision. Yeah. And for me, the ideation is separate from suicidality. And, and so I try to distinguish between the two. So talk about like, what's the ideation part? And so for me, ideation is, is this thing where the feeling of 
wanting to not be alive, and I'm saying that very specifically in that way, it's not necessarily a feeling of wanting to die, wanting to have the experience of dying. It's the experience of wanting to be dead or to no longer be alive, which are different. The feeling of wanting to die has closer to that suicidality aspect, which is also present in other self-harming behaviors, self-medication, cutting, other stuff like that, where the point is a a sort of uh, self-inflicted masochism and and an attempt to... And I always liken it to trying to make yourself actually feel the pain that your brain is telling you you're having, which doesn't make any, it doesn't make sense that I feel like I'm in this enormous amount of pain. There's nothing seemingly wrong with me. And that incongruity is itself very disturbing, dissonant and and jarring. And I think one of the things that depression does is it's like, you know, that what you're thinking doesn't make any sense, right? Or is in conflict with itself. Yeah. And and there is very much a delusionary quality to Mm -hmm. it. There was a time where depression was cataloged among other psychotic disorders because of depression's ability to disrupt rationality, to create kind of a delusional quality in, in one's thinking. It definitely has that that impact, you know, other, it's in that way. And it's similar to social, some social anxieties, for example, where it doesn't matter how, how well your friends treat you or how, uh, how much fun you have when you're with them, when you're thinking about going out, you're like, Oh, nobody wants to see me anyway. And and I'm not going to have a good time. And they all kind of hate me and they're just Mm -hmm. putting up with me. And, you know, there's no, no evidence for any of that. Right. For any of that thinking. And there's quite a bit of evidence to disprove that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. But when you're inside of that construct, all of the countervailing evidence is part of some sort of plot or wishful thinking, or you know the real truth is that you're alone, that no one else can understand you, that you're you're all by yourself. Your experience is isolating and that uh, that's how it's always going to be. That's one of the other things about depression, I think, too, is that when I'm depressed, I cannot remember what it's like to be not depressed. It doesn't occur to me that there has ever been a time and I can sort of dimly think like, oh, I think I wasn't depressed three weeks ago, but in the moment, what I'll think to myself is, no, I mean, I was, I mm-hmm. just... Something good was happening then, and I and it was maxed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That that was that's that's what was fake. Mm -hmm. This is what's real. Depression has this amazing ability to recast your entire experience and perception, Mm -hmm. such that the depression is the only thing that's ever been real, and everything else, however, whatever else you thought was going on, now you are fooling yourself. This is the only thing that's happening, and and this kind of interminable, unendurable, formless pain and and suffering. I think it's important that we talk about suicide, something that you know, around which there's still a huge amount of societal stigma. And I understand it. You know, if, if you've never been there or been close, it doesn't make sense. Like, mm-hmm. why would you take your own life? It's so precious, etc. So you mentioned, you know, a, a metaphorical, but also a real knife sure, to yeah. the wrist or arm. Give me a sense of how frequently have you found yourself in that place? I've never actually tried to kill myself. Well, let me say it this way. I've never actually like taken a directly suicidal action. Right, so that's what what you call a, a suicide attempt. 
Yes. Right. Right. I have, I have never done that. Yeah. I have done a lot of things that I very much hoped would end in my right. death <laughs> and yeah. that were uh, extremely destructive to myself and people mm. around me and that were very, very bad, bad, right. bad news. Um, what would be some examples if you were uh, to talk about? Getting real drunk, driving mm. to the casino over a very long bridge. Hopefully I drive off the bridge. Right. And if I don't manage to drive off the bridge, then at least I'll drunkenly gamble away a bunch of my money and make right. my life worse. And then, you know... <laughs> And then maybe I'll drive off the bridge right. on my way back. Yeah. You know, you get a twofer. And please don't <clears throat> take away from that that I'm like proud of that or I tell that yeah, or I tell that's, that that's or I tell yeah. that story as uh, I, I tell the story as a example of extremely harmful and destructive things I've done. Right. I do not tell that story as a example of what I've been able to get away with yes. or think of that as being anything other than uh, a horrifically stupid. Thank you for that antisocial thing to do. Yeah, right. Thank you for like, that nuance. Yeah. I have done things that arguably should have ended in my death. I have stood there wanting to end my own life, but I've never actually made a direct suicide attempt. Right. But it's been close. Uh, it's one of the reasons I, I don't ever have a gun in the house or right. go anywhere where there is a gun in the house mm-hmm. or, or that I know of, you right. know, and I don't, you know, go to the gun range. I don't go shooting. I don't mm-hmm. do it. Like, I'm not putting myself in a position right. where... It would be that easy because I don't know. I don't know that I have the wherewithal to resist when it's that simple Mm -hmm. to cause yourself massive injury and and damage. Most of uh, my abortive uh, suicide attempts have been because, you know, I didn't have the right pills or I didn't have, right. an, I didn't have them the right dosage. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really just gonna make myself sick. There's no, right. there's no, right. you know, there's no point in doing this yeah. or I'm a coward and I don't want to tear my arm open yeah. or the amount of time it'll take to run the bath is the amount of time it takes to, to, to uh, reconsider briefly, right. you know, right. but I, you know, close run things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I haven't felt like that in a little while, yeah. which is good. Um, but, uh, that's not to say that I won't feel like that tomorrow. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that's, it's always, it's always a possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always there. Let's talk more about your direct experience with depression. How long does a depression last for you? Weeks, months, years, sometimes. For me, it's a, it's an experience of years, especially because the dysthymia condition. So it's very hard to discern when I'm in kind of my long, low grade depression or I'm, somewhere around the edges of a major depressive episode. Right. The distinctions become very blurry mm-hmm. at that point. I can definitely tell when I'm like extra super duper depressed, right. but I can't necessarily tell when I'm just coming out of it up to whatever my sort of normative yeah. baseline is yeah. or when I'm sinking down a little bit, which right. is why I depressions tend to come on me more unexpectedly right. than they can for other people. Right. Now, um, because because the experience of entering that episode feels very much like my everyday Got it. experience. Yep. There are a lot of people with major depressive disorder who just snap into depression and that and that absolutely happens for sure. For myself and for a lot of other people, I think there's a there's a kind of a feeling of a slide. You can feel it coming on. Mm-hmm. You're not quite there yet, and it's already starting, so you're, yep. you're not really going to be able to avoid yep, it, yep. but you can kind of feel that it's mm-hmm. happening. When I'm in a dysthymic mode and I start moving into a depressive episode, I can't feel right. that slide. I can sort of tell something slightly different, but it's not enough to kind of permeate right. my conscious right. thought as much. Kind of like you're in a noisy room and somebody's talking and you can hear it, but not really? Yeah, I, you know, or if... 
you've got your music on and you've got your morning alarm set to kind of slowly increase. Right. Right. Yep. And your morning music is full of bleeps and bloops. And right. so yeah. it, Isn't it some kind of electronic or something like that? <laughs> and so it sounds basically exactly like that. And it's not until like the the thing is blowing up Got that it. you're like, oh, okay. Yep. Yep. That thing's happening right. now. Yep. But by the time you're aware of right. it, that thing is happening. Wow, I wish I got up fifteen minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. Not everybody who lives with depression ends up with suicidal thoughts or taking suicidal actions. But when you do talk about depression, it's a topic that comes up a lot. As Alok describes it, suicide isn't about wanting the sensation of death. Suicide comes from the pain getting so much that not being alive just seems like a better alternative than being alive. But I think that raises the question, how do you get there? How do you get to the place where the pain is so much that staying alive just doesn't seem like an option? So this has been a long journey yeah. for you. So why don't you talk us through, or let's go back to when you were first diagnosed with uh, depression or dysthemia or whatever, wherever it was Well, it why, don't, why don't I go back a little farther than that, and I'll tell you about when I first knew that I was depressed, because it had a extremely specific onset, and I recall it quite distinctly. Okay. I was 13, and there was a girl I liked at school. I wanted to ask her out. And I think the period before, the school period before I was going to do that, I asked a mutual friend of ours if she thought that the girl in question would be receptive uh-huh. to to my, no doubt, smooth and suave advances. <laughs> our mutual friend told me, oh, our other mutual friend, my best friend at school, just asked her out and they're going out now. And I was like, okay, that's, that sucks, but Hey, you know, I like both of them. Good for yeah. them. And I went through the rest of my day and was like, yeah, it's sad, but it doesn't matter. I went home. I did my homework, went to sleep, woke up and was in the throes of a horrific depression. And uh, upon waking up, I knew something had right. radically changed, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not too uncommon for puberty and for trauma to cause depressive onset. So I could see what you've described there is the experience a lot of people go through in in high school, grade school, whatever it might be, right? So what is it that that's different about your experience than that typical teenage ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Sure. There's a term that both you and I are fond of from our long history of arguing about English football, <laughs> um, which is bounce back ability. Everybody has low moments. Everybody mm-hmm. has disappointments. Everybody yeah. has traumas. Yeah. Everybody has things that don't go the way that, and you get sad about it and you cry about it and it sucks. Yeah. And then you get over it. You work through that emotion. You find out that it didn't kill you. And in a real sense, you're able to kind of put it away. Right. It, it, it diminishes to a point where you're able to put that experience into a context, get closure on it yeah. or whatever it is, and put it aside. Depression takes that ability away. You aren't able to get over things. Mm. You don't return to a baseline of, well, I'm basically fine. Or that was a that was out of my control. That didn't yeah. have anything to do with me. I made all the good decisions I can make and that mm-hmm. and I can I have perspective on this and right. you know and I can serenity prayer my way out of this thing and that's <laughs> right. and that's and that's fine. Right. Yeah. Depression holds you in that spot of pain. So anyway, so yeah, so that happened and I was just like immediately horrifically depressed Mm -hmm. for 
basically the next 10 years or something like that. When I was 16, I had a nervous breakdown. I really don't remember like my senior year of high school. My senior year was 16 to 17. And I can remember like three days from from that year. Uh, I was in a terrible fugue state. Uh, I was quite a mess. Eventually, I, I ended up taking like some, I think it was like an AP exam or something like that, going home and then just not going back to school for two weeks. Wow. Um, just being unable to move, being yeah. unable to get up like anything. That's How'd... around the time when my parents were like, okay, maybe we should go take this person to a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it was as a result of that, that was the first time that I saw a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, and got diagnosed. The psychiatrist that I saw was a uh, friend of the family was not very good and put me on Zoloft immediately, which was about right. the worst thing he could have done in that scenario. When you say not very good, what didn't he do that you now hope he would have done? He was not terribly interested in my experience so much as he was in diagnosing me and um, providing the effective pharmacological remedy. It has not been my experience in the many decades of therapy Mm. that I have uh, been through that there are are as many pill prescribers as people often fear. I have mostly found people who are more interested in Combinations of talk therapy and, yeah. and, and medication and so on and so forth, which I think it feels is, like that's almost something that one should watch for. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people fear, oh, if I go to the psychiatrist or the psychologist, they'll just send me away with some pills, right. and I don't want I don't want my brain messed with. Right. I think a lot of people sure, fear, right? Sure. Which which I think is hilarious because, like, <laughs> why not? Yes. <laughs> well, um, what, what's it What's it doing for you that's so good right now? Yeah. yeah. Um, why, why, but, exactly. Right. <laughs> But yeah, I think I would be cautious sure. if I went to see somebody and that yeah. was their first reaction. They they didn't more deeply explore like, yeah. what's what's going on. Most definitely. Yeah. And and that experience, what I was going to say is that it has not been my experience that that's very common. Yeah. It is unfortunate that that was my fr- that was, that was in fact my, that was in fact my first yeah. experience. And I've, I've had a couple similar run-ins since then. I, I am better prepared for them now than I mm. used to be, where I can kind of definitively say like, no, medication is not what's happening right now. Like yeah. I I I need to get a handle on the therapeutic side of it first, yeah. and and make yeah. sure that I'm talking to somebody that I trust and. Mm-hmm. And that I'm, I, I'm developing tools to work through right. this stuff. Medication I have found at times to be very, very helpful, quite important to um, my my various therapies. I've never had an experience of just being able to take medication and have that be right. You know, you showed there a lot of awareness that I think's been taking you some time to build up about what's going on for you. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like this is something that needs talk therapy versus mm-hmm. this is something that you you can throw a tablet at. Yeah. To be a little more concrete about mm-hmm. that, there have been medications that I've taken that have really reduced my suicidality or suicidal ideation, where those thoughts still occur, but they don't gain purchase and mm-hmm. I don't ruminate on them in the same way right. as as I do in an untreated capacity. And that's, and it's very clearly an effect yeah. of the medication. Yeah. So, and what, so, because I know you've tried a lot of different medications. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, so, what have you found? helps you with that. So, well, Wellbutrin, bupropion is the one that has been the most 
efficacious for me. I have uh, a very good friend for whom uh, Wellbutrin is death. So, and they're on Effexor, which yeah. I have tried twice and I've had two of the worst experiences of my life on. Yeah. So yeah. again, everybody experience is different. Everybody's uh, confluence of disorders is different. Yeah. What works for one person is right. not necessarily going to work for another person. Right. And that's why you stay with it and try and to, to the best of your ability. Right. I'm never going to get mad at anybody for yeah. when they say like, I'm not taking anything right now. I'm not taking anything right now. Right. That makes it hard, I think, sometimes for, you know, you, you're you in this state where you've gone to get help, you realize there's something that's just not right, it's mm-hmm. not working for you, mm-hmm. and someone gives you a pill and maybe they say, or maybe you have the idea that like, oh, this will make things better, right? right. This will make my headache go away, right? right? You know, I'm right. taking ibuprofen, my headache goes away. And it has some bad side effects, oh, yeah. right? Some consequences mm-hmm. to it. And that can be pretty scary when what you're hoping is, right. I'll get better. So like I took, uh, I got prescribed that Zoloft back when I was uh, 17. I took it and that night I had one of the worst suicidal episodes mm-hmm. of my life. Like I had to hold myself completely still in my bed for like 12 hours, 14 hours. Because otherwise I was, the only thing I was going to do was get up and go get a knife. Right. Like that was it. That was my first experience in medication. My second one, I got put on Effexor. And it really fucked with me yeah. and, and I hated it. So how, how was I able, why did I even give it a third shot? Yeah, right. Why you keep know, going? Why, why would I do that? For me, it was because the, the suffering that I was experiencing was so, significant. I cap out on the inventories. You know, if I take the Beck Depression inventory, and I, my high score out of 50 is 49. There was a period of time when one of the only real joys I felt was in like breaking my record on the inventory, right? While trying to be honest, of yeah. course, you want don't lie to your doctors. Of but course. but yeah. Um, and very briefly, so, I mean, that inventory, what is that? There, there are a lot of different sort of short tests that you can take to kind of gauge a depression level. One, one of my doctors has a, a short inventory for anxiety and depression that he administers. It's a very short questionnaire. It takes like uh, five minutes to fill out. And that he administers every time I see him such that he has kind of a trend line and and Mm -hmm. he has a a, a baseline from the initial visit and then a trend line like going up and down and being Mm -hmm. able to, and just being able to kind of monitor the condition metrically. And this is a way of getting at that small up, small down in a, mm-hmm. in a controlled fashion. But anyway, because I was in such a severe depression, I was having a terrible time at school, took a year off between high school and college because I, much to my parents' chagrin, mm-hmm. because uh, I absolutely knew I would kill myself if I went to yeah. school. Like I just was not able to put myself in, mm-hmm. in that kind of like new stress, brand new, brand new environment, et cetera. It would have been uh, quite detrimental to right. me. And I could kind of tell that. You said you haven't had those thoughts in a while, and mm-hmm. you know I would note that you've been in a pretty stable relationship for a while. I'm just wondering if like there's any correlation, uh, causation. Um, it's funny. My my therapist actually said that to me the last time that I saw him. I've been seeing him for nine years. I've had a very long, fruitful therapeutic relationship yeah. with him. If he were allowed to talk about his experience with me, which he's not, yeah. he 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 would tell you that the first few years were extremely frustrating. It was uh, I was very resistant to methodologies and treatments right. and things like that. And so he made the point like, oh, you, you've been in a good relationship for a couple of years, like that helps. And it is true that has helped. 
Mm-hmm. It's one more root. It's, it's one more unambiguously good thing mm-hmm. that kind of lean on in those yeah. times. But by the same token, I wouldn't be able to have had that relationship if I hadn't done a whole bunch of work on myself. Right. If I hadn't right. gotten myself to a point where that was plausible for me to mm-hmm. be anything other than a completely shitty partner right. in a relationship. If I hadn't worked very hard and frustratingly and agonizingly through a lot of things, not just depression stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, the PTSD stuff really rears its head and yeah. some of the relationship things, yeah. stuff like that. That's Then I wouldn't have been able to enter into something that had potential. It's less a chicken and egg thing than a feedback loop, but there's a certain amount of, you know, I need a lot of things to be going right in my life right. to be able to say, like, I'm doing okay. Yeah. Right now I'm doing okay. Yeah. I have a job that I really like. I yeah. have a girlfriend that I really like. Mm-hmm. I have an apartment that I really like. Yeah. It's very messy and is uh, filth because I'm still a depressed asshole, but, yeah. uh, you know, I still like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, when I was in a relationship I really liked, but my job wasn't very good, mm-hmm. that sucked. Yeah. When I was in a job that I liked, but yeah. I wasn't in a relationship, that yeah. wasn't great, yeah. you know. Um, wasn't seeing anybody, was right. feeling isolated, you know, whatever. Yeah. So uh, a lot of things have to kind of right. be in place. Yeah. And this is the, the real, you know, kind of shitty trick about things like depression is that you get the spokes kicked out of one of those things and yeah. all of them can go right. away. You, you can't trust yourself yeah. to be able to be like, oh, well, if I ha- if I get demoted or I get laid off from work, then I'll be fine. I'll just get another job. Yeah. No, I'm going to be on it. I'm going to be right. probably you know, odds are even that right. I'll, that I'll be on the couch for three months. It, it's that idea of bounce back ability right. you know, for some people relationship breaking up would suck. You'd get back on, you know, on track, you know, in a month or two, get fired from your job. Mm-hmm. You get back on track in a month or two, but for you, you know, once, once one thing goes, you know, it's just, significantly harder for yeah. you to bounce back yeah, and get you back to normal. Trauma, traumas expand in the mind and your ability to recover from trauma um, is diminished. You mm-hmm. know, What I'm hearing is you've put a lot of work in over 25-ish yep. years. Yep. Right? To yep. just to find out what medication works, to connect with a therapist that's, uh, you know... Yeah, and again, I'm not taking anything right with, now, but yeah. But yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, right. absolutely. That You know, to understanding how you show up in... A relationship mm-hmm. and how that supports or, or doesn't support your you know, your condition. What other things are part or have been part of that program, if you like, for keeping yourself in a you know you know functioning I, state? It, it really is just it's doing work, yeah. and knowing that there's work to do, wanting to do work, and I don't mean wanting in the sense of oh you have to want to get better. Yeah, you know what I mean. I don't mean I don't mean it in the sense right. of oh if you just wanted to not be depressed right. then you wouldn't be depressed. <laughs> That's not what I'm fucking saying. I hope, I hope, I hope that's clear. Uh, um, I mean, pushing through and even faking it just because the alternatives are shit too. So there's Alok's 25-year journey of trying different psychiatrists, therapists, medication, and building an awareness of his internal state and the tools he needs to help manage it. Most important of all, how he's applied grit in his darkest moments. Through all this, Alok became a productive member of the workforce. So I wanted to learn more about that experience and how major depressive disorder and dysthymia have affected his ability to be successful at work. 
you've used the word work to describe yeah. everything you have done and everything you continue to do to show up in the way that you do. Mm-hmm. And part of this conversation is about work yes. and the place you go every day and the thing that you do that you get paid for. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you do? Sure. What do you do for work? Uh, well, I work at a IT company. Uh, we work with uh, some IBM solutions for, for enterprise companies mm-hmm. uh, and help them figure out where their screws and people are and how to Got get it. the people to the screws and, <laughs> and how to get the people in the screws over to the you, thing that you they make it sound in. magical it is it's uh, um, I think so I work in a mobile uh, mobile studio attached to the main company that works with this database and we make mobile applications that plug into that database. So yeah, I think sometimes people do think like, oh, it's magic. Like it just, we talk to, we talk to the sky and the sky tells us where we're supposed to go. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And Um, what do you, what do you do? So there I am a, the test process and internal products manager. So, uh, I help design and uh, maintain the framework applications that we use and customize for various clients. I implement agile systems and other development and business processes Mm -hmm. for uh, streamlining work and so on. And then I am the test manager of my robust test department of one person, which is me. What would you say it takes to be successful doing that kind of work? Each each one kind of requires some uh, slightly different uh, tools, but attention to detail, I think, is the is the biggest one, which is funny because I don't know that I have a ton of it. Mm-hmm. But, but the ability to keep a lot of moving parts in your head and to be able to navigate through different thought processes and kind of hold one over here and and uh, think about this other one at the same time. And any given day, never mind any given week, I'm probably working on somewhere between three and five things at once, all of which may pop up kind mm-hmm. of suddenly or something may require right. me to put what I'm doing right. aside and, and attempt yeah. to this thing and then move back. So you're keeping, a lot of, keeping track of a lot of different things that are right. happening. You know, there's lots of change, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so a good memory is very helpful mm-hmm. in this context. Okay. The ability to switch focuses, which I am emphatically not that great at. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the ways in which it is challenging to yeah. to do what I do with the stuff that I have because I can get distracted very easily or if I'm if I'm ruminating or my thought process is kind of swirling around in a depressive haze mm-hmm. or I'm, or I'm recycling suicidal ideation thoughts mm-hmm. and things like that it's kind of hard to you know tear away from that number 15 tickets or write out a bunch of user stories or something like that yeah. right it's hard yeah but i don't know it's hard Okay. I, I would I would say it's just hard. Um, okay. Um, well, I guess I the open bot was I assume you get on with it. I yeah. You know I do my best. Work has been a struggle for me for a long time, and a lot of the therapeutic work that I've done has kind of paved the way for my ability to be marginally successful at mm. at 
my job. I think that my issues with depression have been very detrimental to my ability to even try to build a career or try to find a work that is satisfying or to be satisfactory at mm-hmm. at work. I've definitely struggled my way through a lot of jobs where I did enough mm-hmm. and other people were relatively happy with what I was doing, or maybe not not as happy with what I was right. doing, but I was kind of staying above water, but only just. Yeah, I have never been at a job where somebody hasn't had to take me aside at some point right. and say, hey, it seems like you're not really here right yeah. now. It seems like you're not really doing the things that you need to be doing. And other people are starting to kind of notice and are starting right. to kind of be affected you know, I, I actually I spent a lot of time kicking myself and regretting how much depression has taken away from me in terms of being able to really put my energy or thought process to work in other environments. If you're spending all your time thinking about one thing, you're not spending it thinking about other stuff, mm-hmm. right? And in a field where in, it's it's about your thought process and it's about what you can kind of conceive of and 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 make manifest, an inability to apply your thinking to the project or to the the work is very difficult, right? Mm-hmm. It's very detrimental. And I very often wonder, where would I be if I hadn't spent so very many years using 90, 95% of my brain to keep mm-hmm. myself from dying? I was able to give more than 5%, 10% of my energy over to mm-hmm. learning a new coding language yeah. or uh, taking a business class or mm-hmm. getting more involved in other facets yeah. of my workplace or studio or whatever so that I could be more well-rounded. You know, yeah. What if I had the ability to really do that? Do I get on with it? Yes, mm. I do get on with it ultimately in the yeah. end. But when I think about it, the things I think about aren't Oh, I'm getting on with it. Yeah. It's much more about how I've been able to progress to some degree in my area or field or what mm-hmm. have you. I've been able to pick things up and apply them and retain them mm-hmm. and reuse them such that I'm adding value and, and uh, creating efficiencies and all that. I'm luckily at a place where when people have had to talk to me about my performance or where they've been dissatisfied mm-hmm. and I've made concrete and visible changes that they've been able to put that stuff away and mm-hmm. okay you're back good yeah great yeah. There, there's the person we hired yeah. awesome and 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 I've had my boss also sit me down and say like I've had these issues too like mm. I I don't claim to know how you experience it, but I want to be sympathetic to you. I also need things to keep moving. That's that's a line to walk, yeah. you know, and and it's hard to kind of enforce a certain amount of discipline or a certain mm-hmm. amount of productivity while still being sympathetic to the fact right. that people are different. And I'm much more of like a burst kind of worker, right? right? Like I'll sit there, I won't seem to be doing anything for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, like 15 hours, 20 hours a day, you know, yep. like just plow through it and then be like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> it's time to hibernate again. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I, I like the place I am. They seem to like me. I don't want to do something mm-hmm. to like trigger somebody's prejudices or, right. or mess things up in that way. And then what inevitably happens is that because I talk about this in a number of other 
<laughs> context. <laughs> Somebody's like, oh, yeah, no, I know you're depressed. Yeah. And like, oh, right. right, yeah, of course you do, because yeah. I don't hide it at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you're very much out with depression. Yeah, right? yeah. And I, and I made a conscious choice to do that a long time ago, you know. For the most part, I think that that's been good. I think that I have been able to be a resource for other people who are kind of struggling with the thing. I've had a few coworkers pull me aside and say, like, the fact that you just kind of talk about being depressed while we're sitting in the row, we're testing something or whatever. And, right. and you'll just talk about like, oh yeah, I was at my therapist yesterday and, yeah. and you know, I'm trying this new thing out and it sucks, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're just so open and kind of casual about it right. made me realize that I could just go to the doctor and go mm-hmm. get some help with some things and I'm actually feeling better and, yeah. you know, that's great. That's great. And yeah, yeah, and I, you know, those are big wins for, mm-hmm. I, I feel those as successes, as yeah. workplace successes, yeah. you know. We talked a lot about the, challenges Mm -hmm. that you face and the work that you put in and you have and are and I hope will continue to be successful in what you do for the most part sure and in part I think because of the sheer amount of effort you put in Mm -hmm. to showing up in the way that you do yeah tried very hard to improve my ability to cope with this stuff in all yeah. aspects of my life. Not just to reduce it, yeah. its influence, although that's always nice. <laughs> um, but when that's not possible, not to slam my head against that wall, but mm-hmm. to try to work with it. You yeah. know, I, I often describe it as a terminal condition, which is not quite right, but is not that far off. It's certainly a chronic and incurable condition, let's right. say. And so with the fact that this is just going to happen, accept that mm-hmm. and find ways to manage, you know, right. and find ways to get stuff going. I try to let people know that positive reinforcement or positive feedback is very helpful for me because I'm not very good at yeah. being able to determine on my own that I'm doing well or that I'm doing the right things, right. you know. It genuinely, it might genuinely be the first time it's occurred to me that I might have done a good job of that thing. Right, (laughs) right. You know, um, I might be incapable of thinking that I did a good job on it. You know, if you think about a work environment where you can truly thrive, what else would help and support you as somebody with, you know, dysthymia and major depressive disorder in the workplace? Yeah. So one of the things that's really helpful is that my workplace has a fairly flexible work from home policy. Everybody kind of just gets a a day, a week to work from home. You can take other ones uh, during the week if you really need them, but try to keep it to a day kind of thing. But if you need a second one, it's not like the end of the world or anything. Most people in my office have set days, right? They're just not in the office on Thursday. They're not yeah. in the office on Wednesdays, yeah. whatever. That's, and very often that ends up being a day that they're, they have childcare that day. Or, uh-huh. or, but I tend to use it more as a floating during the week. Well, I'm not feeling great yeah. one of these days. Uh, I use it for other things too, but I try to keep it yeah. flexible for that because that's a thing, right? Yeah. Um, how does that, how does that help? Like you, you're feeling, you know, maybe I'm heading into depression here or there's a thought pattern here that I'm uncomfortable with. Like how does being able to work from home help you? Well, uh, you know, in a, in a very real sense, if I'm, if I don't feel like I can get out of bed, then I don't have to. Now it's still difficult to take the three steps over to the bag and go get my laptop mm-hmm. and come back and come back to <laughs> come back to uh, lying down. But that at least is more plausible or manageable than get dressed, get ready, you know, yeah. all that stuff. I I live close to work so I'm walking, yeah. you know, or you know, or if you're driving or trying to take the bus without people around or, you know, yeah. all any of those kinds of things, right? 
I try and I try to be conscious of the fact that because I'm uh, also a manager and uh, spearhead a lot of projects, that people need to interact with me, yeah. and so it can be difficult when one of those kinds of days runs headlong into a oh you have meetings all day yeah <laughs> right kind of days yeah. right you know and in those scenarios what I usually try to do I just try do your best to push it aside yeah you know do your absolute best to kind of just hold it in place yeah get through your eight hours yeah. then go then go be miserable yeah right <laughs> right yeah. and not everybody can do that and not and I can't do that a lot of the time yeah. but you know, if I'm able to do that, then that's yeah. kind of how I try to manage it. This is all still a work in progress for me. Like, let me be clear. Like, I don't have it fucking figured out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know there's anyone, like, right? Right, but, uh, right, right. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I have some systems that I've managed to develop agonizingly mm-hmm. over uh, a long period of time that allow me to hold things off. But they're not systems that prevent me from being depressed at work. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's no no power on earth yeah, can do that. Exactly. They are really just like cognitive behavioral therapy like style algorithms of okay, when you're stuck, when you can't think of anything new, when right. your brain's a fog, up on my whiteboard, here's a list of things in priority. Right. Just do the first one. Yeah. yeah or yeah. just look go look at right. the first one. Yeah, go look at it. Just go look at whatever that thing is, you then, know. Then maybe do it. And then maybe do it, yeah. right? Yeah. But at least you look at least you right. took stock of it. At least, yeah, yeah. at least you did something, right? It's like breaking um, things down into very small. Right. It helps that I, you know, do agile system stuff yeah. and a big part of that is that kind of chunking right. process, right? I'm testing this big feature and it's I'm going to have to spend like 7 hours just setting up the test environment and yeah. all of the circumstances and that just seems like a lot. Right. All right. Skip that one. Yeah. That one's that one's documentation. Right. Yep. Go write a couple paragraphs about yep. something. You know. Okay. You can't write. Okay. This one's review a document. Yeah. Just go read it. All right. You can't do that either. Okay. You know. And maybe you can't do any of it. Yeah. Maybe you can't. Right. That might happen. Um. That does happen. Yeah. But having some, having done some amount of pre-thinking yeah. <laughs> to prepare for right. those moments. When I talk about doing the work in general with the therapy and everything else, that's what I'm talking about is just yeah. preparing myself for sort of muscle memory reactions to mm-hmm. things that are going to happen again. If you had just got in a car accident. Sure. Right. And there was that meeting and it was really important. And he said, I'm really sorry, I just got in a car accident. Mm-hmm. Most workplaces and most colleagues would be like, Oh my, like, go take care of that thing. Right. Like, this work is not important anymore. Right, right, right. What do you think is different about, I am in a major depression right now and functioning for me is extremely difficult? I don't think there's anything I, different. And I'm seeing that change to some degree uh, in, in Seattle. The idea of taking a mental health day is a lot more common than it used to yeah. be, especially because we there are a lot of places that have very kind of uh, lackadaisical attitudes to things like, mm-hmm. and if you're sick one day, you don't like take it off the schedule. You yeah. just come in that day. And if you're not doing it too often or whatever, then Mm. it's fine. It doesn't matter. The difference between a migraine or a massive allergy attack and a major depression or Mm. some sort of uh, mental health uh, debilitation is pretty minimal. I am not able to come in and focus the way that I need to be. I can potentially, maybe I can come in and mark time, but that's not actually doing anybody any favors. The thing I try to be aware of, if I'm able to go in and 
be at least like available to other people, that's marginally better. Yeah, I still might be able to answer somebody's question, and that's right, good, right? Or I right. still might be able to weigh in on some issue. Okay, it's better, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so I try to keep that in mind, especially again because I work in a small yeah. studio and and I have a lot of stuff that's just under my purview. So mm-hmm. there aren't other people that can yeah. necessarily answer that. The reason that anybody treats mental health differently than other things always comes back down to stigma, right? Yeah. It just comes back down to the idea that mental health is under our control in some way that physical health is not. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? There's a whole Enlightenment Renaissance philosophy of, you know, Cartesian mind-body dualism Mm -hmm. that means that we tend to think of the mind as being more powerful and more important and the body is kind of the thing that betrays us. And this is especially prominent in IT fields, right? Like your body is basically just uh, a meat puppet And then, you know, mental health is scary. People's experiences are Mm -hmm. mental, right? They're perceptual. They're based in a type of rationality. They're they're filtered through our brains. Mm -hmm. And something that has no obvious corresponding physical uh, evidence that is unpredictable Mm. by its nature, that is unseen, not verifiable. Yeah. There's no test, right? There's no... Yeah. yeah. You know, especially in a suspicious workplace where people are like, are you really just trying to skive off work? You know what I mean? Are you you, you just malingering, like, kind of thing? You seem fine. Like, how can, you know... Um, because of all the effort. Right, sure. Well, well, or just because you have no idea what not fine looks like. Yeah. Let's go back to stigma. You described mental illness and mental mental health as being a little scary. And perhaps some of those experiences people have had are you know, somebody, for example, who maybe has psychosis, sure. which can be very, very scary oh, sure. to be around. Yep. Perhaps they've had a family member, mm-hmm. an uncle who was talked about in hushed tones because sure. he was in the hospital. Right. Uh, what else contributes to the, to the stigma? In this country, we have an ingrained and presupposed kind of Puritan work ethic culture. That's very much about get on with it. One of the most complimentary things you can say about somebody is they never missed a day of work in their life, right? Right. Like that's that idea of getting on with it nose of the grindstone, just do do your job, contribute to your society or community or whatever. None of that jives all that well with my brain hurts and I need to lie down. And it looks like laziness. If you come from a perspective where not standing on your feet and and doing the thing is strength and anything else is weakness. And and yet what I've heard is a story of strength, strength in terms of courage, in terms of, you know, grit at times to to persevere and to, to keep going. Right. There's absolutely nothing weak about surviving this thing, and there's nothing weak about not surviving this thing, right? right? right. I, obviously, I'm biased. Honestly, I dare anybody to spend a lot of time staring into the abyss of your own mortality and wanting it and mm-hmm. preventing yourself from having it and tell me that that's not some sort of act of will, which is not to say that people who commit suicide have, have therefore succumbed or, right. or that they are therefore weak or anything. I'm definitely not saying that. What would you say as somebody with depression, what is it that you want your coworkers to accept? That I'm still me in here somewhere, even when it doesn't really look like it. 
it requires a certain amount of faith to believe that somebody who changes so dramatically, mm-hmm. as people in depressive episodes often do, it seems to be completely different people. It can be hard to have faith that the person that you've been working with all this time didn't just suddenly disappear and that they're coming back. But I think that that's important to be able to do. Not in this, and when I say that, I don't mean in the sense of I need you to stop putting responsibilities on my plate. I need you to stop asking me to do yeah. stuff. I need yeah. you to, you know, ease up on me or anything. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying mood disorders are hard to deal with because personality changes are scary. It doesn't make sense. Right? Why is this person suddenly angry? I think understanding is important. Doing some research. I have a coworker who has a significant physical disability. I spend a little time just looking, just seeing what the thing is. Right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not going to be an expert on it by any means, right? But but I I can learn a little bit about. Oh, okay. Here's what this thing is. Oh, okay. Some sometimes people have to. Um, arrange them like physically arrange themselves in a certain way in yeah. order to deal with that. I didn't yeah. know that before. Right, right. now right. I know that. Right, yeah. like you know, more understanding is never bad. I'm thinking about colleagues that you work with who who know that you have depression. They might feel like they want to talk about it or mm-hmm. acknowledge it, but don't know how. So, how would you like people to talk about your depression with you and kind of acknowledge and recognize it? I'm I'm in a bit of an interesting situation with regard to this because I am really open yeah. about it. Perhaps unfortunately so. People pretty often, actually, uh, you know, a coworker of mine just, you know, shot me a message on Slack. We were talking about something else and like, "Oh, by the way, you know, I was listening to mm. I was listening to that episode of your podcast yeah. and and I think it's really cool how mm. you're like really open about this stuff." Another coworker Messaged me and was just like, "Hey, so what can you tell me about these medications? Do you know anything about? Right. Do you know anything about them? Do you yeah. have you had any experience with them? What's that like?" Right. My impression, <laughs> from what I can gather, is that people feel pretty free yeah. to kind of talk to me about yeah. it. Obviously, most people aren't going to be in that yeah. situation. Yeah, you've created that situation. Yes, I've, I've deliberately created that situation. Yeah. Um, it, it was a very, very conscious yeah. decision on my part right. to, if I can abuse the metaphor of the closet for a moment, to mm-hmm. not be circumspect about it, precisely to reject the idea of stigma around it. It does not seem to me to be a thing that should have a stigma attached to it. Right. And so I do my best. Yeah. To and I don't always succeed, but I do my best to act as though there isn't. Yeah, it's just part of my just part of my shit. If you want to talk about it, that's cool. If not, right. not. But you know, I'm I'm not pretending that it's not happening. Right. You're choosing to show up as you. Right. And this is a big part of it. Yeah. You know, this is a, a very central and core piece of how I got to wherever it is that I yeah. am. Other people are obviously not in that situation, and quite rightly so, for mm-hmm. any number of, of right. reasons. Prescribe uh, any kind of like one-size-fits-all way of, of, of trying to talk to somebody. You may or may not be somebody who wants to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You may not want to talk about it right now, just mm-hmm. because you're in a depression, and like right. that's a lot to deal with. So if, if there was someone listening to this conversation fairly recently diagnosed with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with depression, dysthemia, or both, what would you have them know? I hate the phrase, it gets better. It can be manageable, mm-hmm. and it can get better. Yeah. I would say that I have gotten better. There is absolutely no way that I felt like that for the vast majority of my life. Anybody who would have told me that, I would have dismissed immediately. Yeah. And there was no guarantee that that was that I was going to feel better, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that I do now is is interesting, but what doesn't go away is your tools and the framework and the repertoire that you construct for yourself to the best of your ability to manage the thing. 
those things can be improved upon. Those right. things can be practiced and can be crafted and can be reused and reused and can make things incrementally more manageable. Yeah. And it gets manageable is something that I do think can happen, yeah. right? Maybe less scary as it gets less manageable. Sure. More that, manageable. I, I think that say. better might be a product of more manageable. Mm -hmm. Can't prove that and I wouldn't sign my name to it. But it is possible to live with this, even though everything about it is telling you there is no living with this. Right. It is possible to live with this in such a way as to derive uh, satisfactions from yeah. your life in other, in other aspects. It is possible to remember that depression is a liar even when it's lying to you. Um, and, I, you know, sometimes I don't even really like that whole depression is a liar thing because it right. doesn't feel like a lie, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's yeah. not very helpful to somebody in right. that perspective. The reason I keep talking about the work, and I don't mean the work in as a, it must be a constructed professional therapeutic experience, but the work as the act of building those kinds of tools for yourself is because I believe that the only way out is through. And that the application of your energy and your effort to the problem is itself salutary, even if it doesn't fix anything. Your ability to deal <laughs> is a muscle. Depression takes, atrophies that muscle. Working on managing your depression rebuilds that muscle. So it's that's a, it's a mental therapy in the same way as you might use PT for a, uh, a leg that was broken for a long time. And, mm -hmm. and you know, you have to rebuild a whole bunch of shit and you right. and, and you know nothing works the way that it's, that it's supposed to. And yeah. it's very frustrating and, and, and might not get better, right? There is something maybe only ephemerally valuable, but there is something valuable about applying yourself to the the issue in whatever way that manifests for you. Mm -hmm. I, I'm certainly not prescribing any specific forestry cookie wisdom. The act of that working has a beneficial effect, mm -hmm. I think. I don't know that it has an ameliorating effect. I don't know that it has a curative effect, but there's something beneficial about it. If you stay with that, you'll perceive that benefit, I do believe. Right. Is that enough for you? I don't know. Is that satisfying enough? Is that sufficient? I don't know. I can't say any of that. Yeah. I couldn't say any of that. Yeah. I wouldn't. But some benefit will be tangible to you, yeah. I think is true. And that's yeah. the best I can do. You know, Keep working at it. It's fortune cookie wisdom there. <laughs> <laughs> Very unsatisfying fortune cookie <laughs> wisdom, I suspect. <laughs> Alok, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your courage in the work that you do. And uh, I hope we keep being able to have these conversations in the future. Oh, you're making me blush. I'm Indian, you can't tell, but it's happening. <laughs> Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Yeah. And that's Alok's story. A long battle with major depressive disorder, dysthymia, and complex PTSD. Alok showed me that by talking about our mental health, we can reduce the stigma. And for those of us who live with a mental illness, it can help you feel less alone. If you've liked what you've heard today in Silent Superheroes, please take a moment to leave us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. You can also sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com and you can follow us at facebook.com forward slash silentsuperheroes. And while you're there, you can leave a comment about what you thought about the show. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 
or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.